Hello and welcome. You're listening to Voices from the Pews, the show that invites you to conversations with Catholics of color and those from communities of non-European origin, so that we can get to know more about each other's faith, experiences, and stories. I'm your host, Lorna Deros. Today, we get to know about a Cuban-American who grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and serves as a missionary in Japan, and the spiritual journey that led her to embrace God's call to bear witness to the goodness of God so that others may be filled with the desire to know Him and love Him. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Sister Mary Corribio, a sister of Notre Dame de Nemours. Well, Sister Mary, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so happy and delighted that you are able to share with us a little about yourself and your ministry. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you, Lorna. And um, we've known each other for, oh gosh, many, many years now. But I wanted to ask you to share a little bit about being Cuban-American, growing up in Louisiana. And what was that like? I sometimes imagine that it must be that immigrant children sometimes don't always realize that being immigrant makes a difference. And it's when you're an adult, you look back and say, oh, yeah, you know, I I was different from the other kids. (laughs) But at home, it was Cuban. We had Cuban food. We spoke English in the house, to tell you the truth, but my grandparents never spoke English. And so there was just a a wonderful mix of things. You go to school, everything's Louisiana. You come home, just the traditions we had for Christmas and uh, birthdays and things like that were were more on the Cuban side. And, And then you'd go to school and you'd be in the Louisiana milieu. And what I learned later is Louisiana and Cuba have so much in common. One, because one of our major products for both is sugar. So sugar, sugar is our culture. There's something joyful about it. There's something sweet, of course, about it. And uh, I think both Louisiana and Cuba enjoy that kind of part of life, the dance, the song and uh, the joy of life. I think that's something they have in common. So that just infused your childhood, whether you were at home or out in school or your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, There was this culture of joy infused in anything and everything that you did, whether you were celebrating Christmas or just just out and about. Um, That's right. That's right. I think it was a great place, Louisiana, to grow up. I would say. And, you know, Louisiana, Southern Louisiana was is very Catholic. And I think when I was small, I just imagined everybody was Catholic. And I remember it was kind of like a surprise to me when uh, I found out some of my teachers might not have been Catholic, especially it was a huge shock in high school when I was out at a Burger King on a Friday in Lent and I bought the... Uh, <laughs> the fish sandwich and my friend got a hamburger. I said, you can't eat a hamburger. And she said, yes, I can. I'm not Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, how 
can you not be Catholic? Everybody's Catholic. Everybody's Catholic here. <laughs> What's going on? But you know, it's interesting because Catholicism, because of the French and the Spanish influence in Louisiana, um, mm. is such a part of the culture and even the way in which counties and municipalities um, are structured. Mm-hmm. And we call them parishes. They're not counties. Mm-hmm. So I come from East Baton Rouge Parish. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is special. And do you know, even now from here in Japan, sometimes every time there's a new speaker or a new priest on Ascension Presents or one of those YouTube channels, and I find out they're from Louisiana, I'm like, oh, yeah, we have lots <laughs> of holy people where I'm from. <laughs> the, the Louisiana, the gift to the church. Right. Absolutely. So when you are thinking about your childhood growing up with your grandparents, your parents, your siblings, and thinking about going to mass, were there particular holy days or celebrations that meant more to you within the Cuban tradition or even within the tradition that you grew up in, in um, East Baton Rouge? You know, of course, like, November 1st. Mm-hmm. November 1st was a big day. And um, Louisiana, like everywhere we had, but we have our Louisiana way of going to the cemeteries and cleaning the cemetery stones and visiting. And there's also a very big celebration in Louisiana of St. Joseph's Day, which is interesting because that's an Italian custom. Mm-hmm. But of course, there are immigrants from everywhere. So, and the, the St. Joseph's Day altars were something to behold. And I went to St. Joseph's Academy. So St. Joseph was a big saint for us. Now, thinking about the holy days and feast days, how did that influence your faith life growing up? Well, I think that being Catholic was just the way life was. You know, it was a part of the fabric of the day-to-day. It was the routine. Um, My parents, they were catechists. And I remember they would have the teenagers come over to our house and do the session down in the living room, which is an interesting kind of thing. You know, I don't think they do that at home in the homes anymore, but that was a 1970s thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course I was not a teenager I wasn't part of it. So I was relegated to, you know, stay upstairs with the television and don't come down. (laughs) (laughs) But they also belonged to the liturgy committee. I remember they belonged to a Bible group with their friends. And, you know, it was just a big part of our life. Mom and dad both were lectors. And, you know, so they were active at the church. Mm -hmm. And when Eucharistic ministers became a possibility, they also started to do that. I remember mom came home with a little booklet with cartoon characters kind of explaining why we were now able to receive the Eucharist in our hands. And, you know, she said, read this like it's the Bible, you know, read this. It's important. I was like, oh, okay, mom, gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) So really all all those kind of things in the 70s was quite an interesting time to to grow up. You know, there were just different kinds of liturgy experimentations you know looking back on it at the time it was like so normal we'd use songs that were on the radio we'd sing at mass and different things like that 
even like when I was confirmed, a lot of the confirmation songs were popular songs from the radio. And um, of course, the songs that were on the radio had those kind of themes, you know, that that you could you could do it. Yeah. So, yeah, the 70s were really special. Yeah, they they were. And I think the interesting thing, too, is just this is just within not even 10 years of Vatican II. And people were just saying, what can we do? How can we move forward? And how how do we relate to the world as church? And how do we relate to each other as church? And so there was a lot of people experimenting, trying new things, doing new things, borrowing things from other cultures to see what they could do to invigorate the mass or even the the parishes here too. Mm. And, you know, and like that, sometimes you try things for a generation or so, and then you sort through it. Right. Yeah. Like when Jesus says you throw the nets and you save the good fish and you toss the other stuff back. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, and I think that's what's happening, you know, because it's probably 60 years on from mm. Vatican II. So I think that sorting through the net, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of the good fish, mm-hmm. um, but I know that we still have to sift through and we pray sift that, through uh, some of the stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's a growing process. It's almost like we started from scratch again and, mm-hmm. and then we rediscover things, you know, it's yes. like the things that were thrown out, people, find them again and say, wow, it's like uh, stuff that was put up in the attic and you right. bring it out. It's like, this is precious. Yes. Like wow. the diaconate. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, but there are many beautiful things that came out, right? the documents themselves and mm. um, what they have taught us. And they, they still have a lot to teach us and the many other initiatives that have come forth because of Vatican II. We're grateful for that. I remember the first time I ever heard of Vatican II, right? Because I was in the church when I was in seventh grade, so I was about 12, and there was somebody there with a questionnaire survey, Mm -hmm. and it wanted to know how we felt about Vatican II and changes and da-da-da, and I was like, all ready to to answer these questions at the age of 12. And my first question was, and and what's Vatican II? What do you mean? And he's like, well, if you don't know what it is, you probably can't take this question. (laughs) Oh, sadness. (laughs) I do remember that that was the thing. So all the adults, of course, had lived before Vatican II, but I was born like right after. So being that you have lived through a very transformative time in the church. We all have really. And you have had some transformative experiences in your life and becoming a religious sister. What was a transformative moment that helped you to begin to consider this as a vocation, as a way of living your life? Well, my vocation was born in the Louisiana thunderstorm, I would say. Were you and Saul of Damascus having, <laughs> were you and Saul having a moment uh, together? Well, not quite like that, but I had uh, these wonderful, the sisters of St. Joseph, they were in my elementary school. I was in eighth grade and they had several schools and they invited two eighth graders from each of their schools to their house in New Orleans for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Now, are they not saints? 
yes. have like 25 eighth graders in the house with them. And um, so they had this wonderful weekend that was a vocation weekend without me really knowing that. But what they really did is they helped us to know how to pray. They gave me a little candle from the chapel and they told us all, you know, Jesus is your friend. Go and talk to him like, uh, you know, like you talk to anybody. You don't have to say any rote prayers if you don't want to, you, you know. And um, that weekend was a huge lightning thunderstorm. So I was out on the porch talking to the Lord mm -hmm. and he was responding with lightning and thunder. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember saying that up until that point, Jesus was an historical figure that I was learning about. But on that weekend, I met him. How beautiful. And I knew that he was real. I knew that he was my friend. And on that weekend, I was so in love with Jesus. I said, I got to be a sister. So I'm 12, you know, I'm 13, 12. That was the first time, you know, and then you have your whole life and there's all kinds of winding roads. My dad likes to say that I am like a living example of how God writes straight on crooked lines. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after this message. In the age of Zoom meetings and virtual conventions, it can be even harder to really network with people in your industry. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? It can lead to networking gold. Hosting a podcast is an opportunity to sit in an intimate setting with top movers in your industry and ask them those probing questions. How did you get where you are? Where did you come from? And what was the journey like getting there? If you're interested in starting a podcast, check out superblink.org. Welcome back to our conversation. And how did you find your community, the Sisters of Notre Dame de Nemours? Well, you know, I went to um, a Notre Dame University, Trinity, at the time it was Trinity College in Washington, D.C., and uh, now it's known as Trinity Washington University. That was the first time I met the sisters. And when I graduated, I came to Japan to teach English at a Notre Dame University here because they used to have a little program. Mm -hmm. And after I did that, I took my savings and I went to Europe and I ended up, among other things, visiting the hometown of the foundress, St. Julie. Oh, Yes, a little town called Couvely, France. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, even finding it, people had to help me because it wasn't on every map. And in those days, there was no Google. So right, right. You, you, you basically had the guidebook and a big map. And if that big map didn't have it. You... Yeah, you had to find a more detailed map. Right. And uh, that was a really amazing experience because. The first thing that happens is that I've, I'm intending to just pass through Kuvali mm -hmm. and I stop and I find the house and there's a plaque on the wall that says, this is the place where St. Julie was born. Mm -hmm. And that was an amazing thing to say, wow, Julie, it's a real live person and she was born here. <laughs> right. What was the house like? 
oh, it's this tiny house. It's a two room house or maybe it was three rooms. The front room was like a little shop where her father sold materials. Then there was a room behind that that was the family room. And that's where everything happened, where people slept. It was the whole family life in that one room. And then there was a storage room in the very back. And Julie eventually fell ill and they converted that storage room into her bedroom. Hmm. So that room is now like a special chapel, hmm. a memorial room for, for Julie. So it was really great just to see that plaque and to realize Julie was a real live human being at what, you know, mm -hmm. and then one of the sisters came out and said, Oh, are you the American girl? And I said, uh, yes, I'm an American girl. I said, Oh, we thought you were going to arrive yesterday. And I was like, oh. I was totally blown away. Somebody had called them, <laughs> I guess. So they were waiting for me and they invited me to stay the weekend. My goodness. So here I'm a perfect stranger and they invite me to stay the weekend. It was the biggest blessing because it was a real experience of the communion of saints. Julie was alive. It wasn't just that she had been a human being. She was a living saint and I could feel her presence there. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the seed of eventually being led to Notre Dame. Now, I had a few turns in the road where I was looking at other orders, but I have this imagination of Julie was saying, no, 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 no. You are not entering anywhere no, else. Just come with me. You are a part of who we are. Join us. Yes, yes. Because, you know, I think there was one part of my vocation journey where I was in Louisiana and the, the advice I was getting was, you probably don't want to go that far from home. And, and Notre Dame was not in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And I, I did go to a vacation retreat with Notre Dame and I was just vacillating. But, you know, God has his plans because one of the groups that I looked at was the Society of St. Teresa of Jesus. Oh, yes. And to have kind of a formation in the wisdom of St. Teresa of Jesus mm -hmm. was a, a huge blessing. You know, it was just a, a wonderful foundation for prayer life and theology and everything. So like the crooked path that had just so many blessings on the way to get me ready so that when I, I came back to Japan and I uh, discovered my vocation while I was here in Japan and entered with the sisters here. So she who wanders is not lost. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, Lauren. <laughs> Definitely. So that, that, that's wonderful. Now you entered in Japan. Mm. Um, and since then you have traveled and that is how we met actually, because at that's one right. point you were in Boston and we were working together. Amen. Um, yeah. Um, tell me a, a bit about where you have been since you've entered the community. Well, you know, I entered here in Japan thinking that I was giving my life to God for Japan. And very soon after I entered, there were novices in America that were going to start. And they said, well, why don't we send Mary to America? And I was like, well, that wasn't my plan. <laughs> 
but uh, you know, again, again, I went there and it was the turned out to be the biggest blessing. I had a wonderful novice directoress, uh, just wonderful experiences. And, you know, I spent 14 years in Boston mm-hmm. You know, I took my first vows in 2003 and started working at the archdiocese at that time. And then you came, Lauren, I think that same year. No, I you, came a year later, a year later. Yeah, I had I been came, here a whole yeah. year. Wow. Yeah, you had been there a whole <laughs> year. So yes, yes. And I think you, you professed final vows at that one point. Yes, in, in 2009. What a journey. Yes, it was wonderful. Absolutely. It really, I have feel that I've been very blessed. And just working at the archdiocese, I used to just look and say, God is certainly on the move here in Boston. Mm-hmm. So many things were happening. We moved from Brighton to Braintree mm-hmm. and the Cardinal was starting all kinds of things. You know, he, he started his blog he started you know so many things putting focus on the technology and Mm -hmm. and using it for evangelization there was just so many good things happening you had an opportunity to work with various ethnic communities as well yes Uh, yeah and isn't that a blessing lorna Mm -hmm. i mean just the experience of God and spirituality and liturgy mm-hmm. expressed in our one Catholic apostolic church mm-hmm. and just amazing to experience all of that yeah. without leaving the city. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Any given Sunday, we had the opportunity to attend mass in various communities. And sometimes you would be praying in with others and it wasn't that you understood the language but we understood that we were together mm. praying with them um, through the mass um, and, mm-hmm. and that was such a profound moment it really is mm-hmm. and i you know i think being here in japan for a while was a good preparation for that because for me i always went to mass while i was in japan and a lot of my friends here in japan foreign friends they wouldn't go to mass. And when I'd say, well, why not? They'd, they'd say, well, I don't really understand what's going on. So I don't go. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, but it's the same. It's the mass, <laughs> the gestures, the essential gestures are there. That's right. So, mm-hmm. mm. and so I did go to mass, not knowing what I, and I'd sing songs, not knowing what I was singing. It was important and it was, it was life giving and the community here was so welcoming. It was just amazing. I love to tell the story of the first Sunday when I showed up at the Catholic church. I think it must've been, it was either Lent or it was close to Easter because the church was packed Mm -hmm. and I was standing in the back. And um, I remember this usher kind of leaned forward to get a better look at my face because I had dark hair at the time. And Mm -hmm. so he wasn't quite sure. And he was like, oh, a foreigner. Mm -hmm. And he comes up to me with this little yellow book that has the mass in Latin. Oh, Japanese written in English letters and then English Mm -hmm. Romaji. Right. And so I could hear the sounds of what the priest was saying and follow that Romaji, you know, and and then see what it is in English. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. 
I was like, wow, that's really cool. And that little gesture helped you to be Mm. able to actively participate in the mass. Absolutely. Now, as we're talking about welcoming, I remember we would have lots of conversations. And one of the conversations we had was talking about welcoming and culture. Mm. And I Remember you saying something like when we are encountering a different culture, it's that culture is holy ground and we have Mm. to approach it with humility. We have to take off our shoes Mm. um, as we approach that culture so that we, you know, show it respect and we get to know and learn about the people within that community. Mm. Amen. Yeah, I think that's one of those favorite quotes that we always had around the uh, office of cultural diversity because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's so easy to be ethnocentric and think, well, the way we do it is the norm. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> so true. But when you really see that there's so many different ways that the faith, the one faith is expressed and we all have something to learn. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, Lorna, sometimes we'd sit, I remember talking to like people from Eritrea and Ethiopia that Mm -hmm. had suffered so much, Mm -hmm. that had suffered so much and how that impacted their spirituality. And I would just sit and say, you know, I haven't suffered like they have suffered. I think I remember we both of us being around the table when one of them shared how every time he and his family went home because they are Catholic and because of where they live and because of who they are, they would be questioned about Mm. their faith. They would be questioned about, but, you know, I don't even know if we asked them if this is something that they were bothered by. And I just Mm. remember him saying, but no matter what I, wherever I am, I know that my true freedom is in Christ. Mm. And I thought, that is so Pauline. That is exactly something that St. Paul would say, you know, even though he is imprisoned and even though this person had suffered so many trials mm. that we will never know. Mm. Um, and yet he, his faith in Christ, that is where he found his true freedom. Yeah. And Lauren, I remember feeling so often in the presence of saints And there's many times that I might not know because we might not have an opportunity to share at that level or a reason to share at that level. But how many saints, I mean, real saints, have we sat with? Yes. People from every kind of culture who have suffered all Mm -hmm. kinds of things, and yet their faith has brought them through. Mm -hmm. And I'm really humbled by that. I'm really humbled by the way people have clung to their faith and been faithful, the courage Mm -hmm. and perseverance and how just how Christ makes himself known in love and helps people through. So after you left the archdiocese, tell me about your ministry then. Well, the first ministry I had was uh, being a vocation minister for the Sisters of Notre Dame. And I did that for three years and it was really great because I was just immersed all the time in thinking and reflecting on the meaning of this life and finding new ways of sharing that with others. 
going around the country, visiting sisters, visiting their ministries, introducing myself around to the different parishes in their neighborhood, in their cities, and looking for who God is calling to be a sister of Notre Dame, you know? And I think it was uh, a rich experience just to deepen my appreciation for the vocation itself and just deepen my ability to articulate what it means. And in that ministry too, I had just wonderful opportunities to meet other uh, religious because I always, I didn't want to do vocation ministry alone. So every time I had a chance to speak at a parish, I would go and look for somebody else to come with me. Mm -hmm. And I met some really wonderful people and, you know, they would come and you never knew what, how they were going to tell their vocation story. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it would just blow me away. You know, I'd go and pick up a, a young priest and we'd go down and um, and then he'd share his vocation story. And I'd be like, wow, I, I was just in the car with him. I had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and who knows who heard that particular story and how it affected their exactly their lives exactly yeah. mm. so you did that for three years or so three years mm-hmm. and then I was invited to come back to Japan mm-hmm. after 14 years away and it was just a wonderful opportunity so I was happy to come back and here I am I'm in Japan we have 38 sisters here in Japan we're four houses and um we have several schools from university level down to preschool. Mm-hmm. And um, I teach English at our high school here in Hiroshima. And what I really love about Hiroshima is our history here is that our sisters came mm-hmm. shortly after the war, that there was a big push to reestablish education mm-hmm. after the devastations of the war and the of atomic course. bomb. Yes. And um, the Jesuits were a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Father Arupe was here and uh, other. The Jesuits had been able to continue their ministry because like Father Arupe was from Spain and the other Jesuits were German. So they had not been disrupted during the war. Our sisters, uh, the Americans, had been arrested mm-hmm. and put into concentration camps. And eventually they, they were all in a prisoner exchange, allowed to go home, mm-hmm. except for one poor sister who was Irish. And she, she wasn't included in the Ooh. deal. So she had to stay. She stayed in the concentration by herself. By herself. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we don't know the whole story, but what a brave soul. Yes. They did fabulous works in the resurrection of the city of Hiroshima. Before they even started their own high school, the Jesuits, they asked us to come and start a girls' school. So we came in 1950. And uh, our sisters, the journals from that time, they could see from their windows the devastation of the city. And, you know, the pictures that we have, like the hill where our school is, in the beginning had nothing. It was just sand and uh, it was nothing. And like one of my coworkers said, yeah, this this place, there was nothing here. 
But there was, there was, if you look two weeks before the bomb, we have pictures of two weeks before the bomb, it was green, like mm-hmm. it is now, right? right? Mm-hmm. But um, our hill was two kilometers away from ground zero. So the, the radiation bounced off our hill. And so all the vegetation was killed. Now, however, it's a jungle. Yes. <laughs> it's an uncontrolled jungle. It has. And um, so it's it really is an amazing witness to resurrection and, you know, symbolically, but also in so many ways, the revivification of, of Hiroshima. It's a beautiful city. It really is a beautiful city. And I'm very proud of our sisters that they came and started the school and and have been a big part of the Hiroshima peace message to the world. Definitely. Now, Hiroshima, it historically was a Catholic city. It does have a Catholic heritage, does it not? We do have a memorial to the martyrs from the old days. So yes, there was Catholicism here in the early days, right after Xavier. Mm-hmm. And then in our diocese, there's a, um, like when the Christians were rediscovered, right? They were 250 years, Japan was closed. There were no priests, no missionaries. And when the Catholic church got back into the country, there was a hope that they might find hidden Christians, but it was unlikely, right? Mm-hmm. After 250 years, sure. But indeed, within two weeks of opening the first Catholic church in Nagasaki, these Catholics bravely stepped forward and said, we share the same heart as you. It just took the church by storm that these Catholic families had been able to hold the faith under persecution in secret. But what happened was the Japanese government was not supportive and they They took all the people and sent them in small groups to different parts of the country, hoping that by breaking up the community, they would give up the faith. And here in in Hiroshima, there was in the greater diocesan area, it's a a town called Suano in the next prefecture, where one of those communities was sent and they were terribly persecuted, but also given great consolations from Our Lady and our Lord. So we are now in the process of trying to get those martyrs canonized. Yeah, so there is a big Catholic history here, even though we weren't one of the sites of the hidden Christians, Mm -hmm. but still there's... There is still a little bit of a history of... History, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I just remember hearing something where Nagasaki had a large... Catholic population and Hiroshima was a site that was also looked at, but they also thought that it would have a significant number of Catholics as well. But I don't remember the whole of it uh, as to, Mm. you know, numbers, but I just remember reading that somewhere. Well, right now, Mm -hmm. Nagasaki has 4% Catholics. And considering that the rest of the country is like point. 5% Catholic, 4% Catholic is quite a lot. That's huge. (laughs) And what's beautiful too in Nagasaki is, you know, there is no animosity 
toward the church, it's celebrated as a wonderful part of the Nagasaki history. So it's not like in the States where you have separation of church and state and there's kind of a suspicion of the church. No, no, it's it's part of the city history that they're very proud of in Nagasaki, which is refreshing. That, that is, that really is. Um, mm-hmm. And thinking about the message of peace from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and keeping the memory alive of the suffering that war can bring and how we should work towards peace. How mm-hmm. has that been a part of the school's community, the, school, the message of the sisters who are working with you there? Well, first start with Hiroshima. Hiroshima has a mission to spread peace, the message of peace, the importance of getting rid of nuclear bombs and never using them again. And the children of Hiroshima in all the schools have what they call peace studies, where in different ways they are being trained to be ambassadors of peace. And um, at our school, we very much participate in that. And our, our girls are part of different peace programs in the city. And it's part of our curriculum as well. Um, we have what we call Mother Julie classes. And it's really for the junior high, but they study peace. They have survivors of the bomb come and visit them and tell their stories. They have children of survivors. And some of them, you know, are grandchildren and great-grandchildren of survivors. And they can tell amazing stories of that they, they've received in their family. So, in fact, we were blessed that five survivors of the bomb became sisters of Notre Dame. And four of them are still living. What a blessing. And yes. And one is just an amazing, she was five years old and she was within two blocks of ground zero. The fact that she survived That's a is a miracle mm-hmm. and she never gets sick, which is the next miracle. She's like the healthiest 84 <laughs> year old in the world. So <laughs> <laughs> she, she is doing what she is called to do. Amen. So, Amen. Well, this has been a wonderful opportunity to talk to you and to hear about your ministry and to hear about working in Japan and ministering in Japan and you're teaching high school students, which I'm sure it has its particular challenges and joys as well. Amen. I tell you, it's more joys because they are so amazing. They are so amazing. Your religious name is Kisai. Yes. And we've been talking about martyrs today Mm -hmm. and share a little bit about who is Saint Kisai. Well, thank you. I'd love to share about him. Saint Kisai was one of the original 26 martyrs of Japan. And he was the eldest member of the 26 martyrs. And he was from the city Okayama. I have always credited him for my vocation because When I came to Japan the second time in 1997, it was the 400th anniversary of the martyrdom. And so the stories were being told and the courage and the perseverance and faith of of the Christians, the whole Japanese Christian history really moved my heart 
And the Lord took that and um, used it to, to kind of call my name and say, you know, I remember being on retreat here in Hiroshima at the Jesuit uh, retreat house. And the question for the day was, where is Jesus waiting for you? Jesus, you know, was waiting for Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. He was waiting for her. Where is Jesus waiting for you? And I remember walking around the, uh, the grounds of the retreat house and saying, well, where are you waiting for me, Jesus? Are you waiting here? Are you waiting over here? <laughs> and then suddenly have the Lord. Um, well, this is how it happened. There was this wonderful statue of the sacred heart mm-hmm. at the top of the hill with his arms outstretched. And I was standing there. And as I stood there, he said, turn around and see what is in my embrace. And when I turned around, of course, it was this beautiful scene of Japan. And, you know, so I felt the Lord's embrace for me and I felt his embrace of me in Japan. Japan. And it was uh, uh, a moment to, to say, well, Lord, if I can help you here in this country, I would be happy to do so. So it really started with Kisai and the witness of the Christians of Japan that kind of moved my heart. And then God was able to use that to invite me to come and stay with him here. And you opened your heart and said yes to that invitation. Yes. Yes, I did. It was wonderful. You know, sometimes it's just, you can't say no. (laughs) It's a beautiful invitation. It's like, you want to say yes. Absolutely. So uh, mm. uh, thank you so much for your yes, Sister Mary. And thank you so much for your gift of vocation, your gift of faith and your gift of friendship. Oh, thank you so much, Lorna. I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation with Sister Mary Caribbeo. I'd like to leave you with two quotes from Sister Julie Biard. The first one is a particular favorite of Sister Mary Caribbeo's. Ah, my dear daughters, let us love him. Let us love him with our whole hearts. Let us do all we can to make him known and loved by all who surround us. The second quote by Saint Julie is, May the holy name of the Lord be ever blessed and praised for all his mercies. I am grateful to those of you who have reached out with words of encouragement, suggestions, and recommendations. Your input is what will help to improve this outreach. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it via email, text, or messenger with a friend, or post it on social media. Voices from the Pews is produced by Lorna DeRose, audio editing and post-production by Byron Lee, music composed and performed by André Lui, social media assistance provided by Jacqueline Brunache, Web hosting provided by Beyond the Brand. For more information about Voices from the Pews, go to VoicesFromThePews.com. Thank you for listening. See you in two weeks.